Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, good morning to those of you that are joining us online. Uh, I'm pretty sure if you've been in church for any length of time, you're probably aware of what I'm going to be touching on in a few moments. Uh, so we'll get there. But I just first want to echo one of the announcements that Pastor Jennifer made. Uh, you know, this past week, my parents celebrated 54 years of marriage. Uh, well done, Mom, for putting up with the old boy. Um, my parents watch, and so, you know, I have to give them a, a little bit of a shout out there. So, of course, you know, I, I'm always amazed that my parents have been able to go that distance. And I know there are people in our congregation who have also done in the region of 50 plus years of marriage. Uh, you know, I chatted with my dad a little while ago and, and sort of said to him, you know, Dad, that's, it's incredible that you guys have been together for so long. You know, the world is, doesn't do that. People just uh, kind of divorce, you know, when things get difficult and, and when things are painful. And, and my dad kind of said, well, you know what, my boy, I've, I've never thought of divorcing your mom. I can honestly say, and I'm glad and I give God thanks, I've never thought about divorce. Murder is a different story. <laughs> and if you've ever felt like throttling your spouse, I would invite you to join us at the marriage course this week. As Jennifer said, doesn't mean your marriage is in, in um, trouble <clears throat> and you don't have to not go because you think your marriage is perfect. There are always things we can learn. Uh, and although we said it's 6.30 onwards, uh, the 6.30 is for the live in-person here. We'll start with some snacks and some treats. And then at 7 o'clock, we will begin the program, and that's what will be live streamed. So if you're joining online for that, you do need to register for it. Uh, and the reason you need to register for it is because we are using the Marriage Course DVD. It's a, it's a series put out by... Holy Trinity Brompton. It's the same church that put out Alpha many, many years ago. Uh, and so there is this element of copyright to it. So when we are live streaming, you need to receive uh, that link as far as I understand. So it's not like you're just going to be able to go, oh, okay, let me just click. There we go. So you do need to register for it, even if you want to do it from home. So that's it. As far as that announcement goes, <clears throat> let us dive in to this morning. If you are joining us this morning for the first time, the last couple of weeks we've been doing a series called Love That Neighbor. And really when we talk about love that neighbor, we're talking about the idea of loving those people that we struggle to love uh, for whatever reason. Perhaps they look different to us. Perhaps they sound different to us. Perhaps they, they have a different worldview. Uh, whatever the case might be, there are those people that we struggle to love. Uh, you know, maybe we've had a conflict at work. Maybe we've ha had some sort of conflict in, in our children's school with another set of parents. And so we kind of feel like, well, it's just easier to ignore them. And then Jesus comes along and tells this parable about loving our neighbors and of course, the teacher that's questioning Jesus says, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus basically goes, it's pretty much everyone around you. You know, you, you don't get a free pass. There's no one that you can kind of look at and go, ah, I don't have to love that person. No, we're called to love. And so we've been looking through that. What does it look like to have that Christ-like attitude? In the last two weeks, uh, we spoke about how do we love those in the LGBTQ community. And, and I know that for many people, that's already a really challenging conversation. 
and so today I'm, I'm kind of leaving that for a few weeks. We'll get back into that, no doubt, in the future. But really the point that we're driving home is even if I believe something, even if my theology puts me here, that doesn't give me an excuse not to love. And all too often we might say, oh, I'm happy to love, but, but they need a change and come over here and then I'll love them. And as we just sang, love is an action. Uh, love does something. Love reaches out. And so the whole point is to love uh, those around us. Today we're kind of taking a similar tack, but a different category. Uh, you know, when I was growing up in school in South Africa, the, the way sport works in South Africa is just a little bit different to here. Uh, all schools play sport. And if you're in school, you have to play a sport. There's no exception. Uh, you don't get a, f a pass or anything. Even if you can't play sport, tough. There are a bunch of other kids who can't play sport, and you just go into the C team, and that's okay. And so it didn't matter what the sport was, whether it was rugby, cricket, netball, field hockey, uh, you name it. Every school, every kid played sport. Uh, and then what would happen is every weekend, each school would play against another school. So, you know, every weekend my parents would drag me off to the rugby field or to the cricket field and I'd play against kids from the other school and, you know, that's just how it worked and, and that's how we grew up. But every now and then we would have what's called a Derby Day. And the Derby Day was when all the teams in your school played all the teams in another school. So you didn't get shipped out everywhere, kind of your whole school pretty much took over another whole school. And it would culminate at the end of the day, especially during winter, where everyone stayed to watch the first rugby team. The first rugby team is the senior, the top team of the school. That's, you know, the, the big kids, everybody wants to be in the first team. And, and so you would kind of wait for that and there would be this huge rivalry in those derby days. And the school that we were kind of rivals with, it slowly got out of hand. And what would happen is in the week leading up to that Derby Day, if it was being hosted at our opposition school, somebody would go to that school and kind of cause some damage. So whether they would do burnouts on the rugby field or kind of TP the front entrance way uh, or, or, or even do something maybe a little more kind of that's skirting with vandalism, uh, we would do this. But we knew that the next Derby Day that we host, they're going to do the same back to us. And then we would try and defend. And, and, and so it got to the point where once the first teams played, your school honor was at stake. And so the, op the opposition was not just another team of kids playing a sport. The opposition were our enemies. And so it became kind of like, you know, we would encourage players in our first rugby team. I didn't play first rugby team. I was too small. But we would encourage our first teammates to, you know, inflict some pain. If, if you can send a kid off, you've done a great job. Break a bone if you can, preferably not yours. And so this was kind of the culture that we had. That school is our enemy. And it didn't matter if we led to the destruction of problem, sorry, destruction of property, or, or even, as I said, an attempt to physically hurt. We most certainly did not love that neighbor. And why would we? They were our enemies. Now, of course, for me, 
It's a silly little illustration because we would know that, you know, that's not a real enemy. Every year our, our school principals would have to lecture us and try and explain to us this is unbecoming. This is not society. This is not what should happen. For many of us, we might think of enemies if, if we've spent any time in military service. If we have any family members who perhaps were involved in a literal war, they would explain to you exactly what an enemy is. It's that person that doesn't just want to see me lose a game. It's that person who wants to literally kill me. Yet, Scripture challenges us. If you have your Bibles with you today, or if you're on a phone or a device or something like that, we're reading from Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to read in just a few moments. I just want to set a little bit of context. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's this ethical teaching that Christ gives. And it's probably one of the most incredible ethical summaries and ethical teachings that you will find anywhere. You know, and as the Sermon on the Mount begins, Jesus points out a couple of character traits that disciples have. And he reminds the disciples, he reminds his audience that Jesus hasn't come to abolish the law. Jesus hasn't come to get away, do away with God's commandments. No, Jesus has come to fulfill those. And Jesus is now going to point out how you and I, the audience, can do that. How we can live in that vein. You know, I, I firmly believe that if you and I put the Ten Commandments into practice, and put the Sermon of the Mount in practice, the world around us would be a very different place. The world would look very different to us. You know, it begins with this image of poor in spirit, broken, humble, hungry, sympathetic, pure, reconciling, enduring. You know, and those aren't the words that define or describe a typical church attender these days. But these are the words that Jesus uses to define his disciples, to live in this vein. And as you read through Matthew chapter 5, it's, it's this collection of contradictions. You know, Jesus begins in little portions by going, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Meaning you've heard this, you've, you've lived this way, you've practiced this way, but I tell you, this is how you should do it. And it's this counter-cultural contradiction to the world around. And really what Jesus is saying is, do life differently to the world around you. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to read from verse 43 to the end of the chapter. And if you've got an NIV, it's probably got a little title just above there saying, Love for enemies or love your enemies. Matthew 5 verse 43. You have heard... That it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so Jesus comes along. You have heard. 
love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You know, verse 43 is actually quite important in this context. Because for a good Jew, for a child of Israel, for for one of those that would have been listening to Jesus, they've already determined who their neighbor is. In Israel at that time, a neighbor was a fellow Israelite. It was someone who believed in the same way that we did. They are like us. They have the same national identity. They have the same faith, the same ideology, the same philosophy. And in fact, not only would a good Jew know who their neighbor was, a good Jew would have nothing to do with anyone who was not their neighbor. They would stay away from them. They would would avoid contact, avoid interaction unless they were forced to in, in commerce or something like that. But certainly in their homes and in in the synagogue and in their places where they would do life, they would avoid anyone who was not a good Jew. And part of why they did that was because it was a misreading of the Torah and the law and the, the prophets. It was a misreading of what we have as the Old Testament. You see, when you read through some of the law and you read through some of the prophets, there's this image and this illustration of those who are not part of us are enemies. They're enemies of God, therefore they're enemies of us. And so even though Abraham was told by God that you and your descendants, the nation of Israel, through you I will bless all people. Through you all people will find me as their heavenly father. And Israel had forgotten that. Israel had had chosen to ignore that. Everyone was an enemy. And this is why Peter comes along a little while later. In in 2 Peter, he says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Israel had lost sight of that. Their teachers had slowly taught them that you need to love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Hate those who are not like us. And so Jesus goes, you've heard that said. And and I'm sure many in the crowds were going, yep, yep. Nodding along. Hate your enemies. And Jesus goes, but I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And just like that ruler or that, that teacher came to Jesus and then said, well, who are my neighbors? Undoubtedly, those who are listening in, and we as well, would probably ask, well, who are my enemies? And of course, the clue as we read through Scripture, our enemies are not those who think differently to us or who believe differently to us or who sin differently to us. Now, of course, yes, there are those who want to see us lose, perhaps. There are those who, maybe they don't want to see us dead, although sadly there are some, but they want to see harm befall us. As I said earlier, during the wars, it was easy to determine your enemy, but today it's a little bit more challenging. Those who want to see us lose, those, those who we want to see Lose. Yet if we read through Matthew chapter 5, before we even get to this passage, a little while earlier, Jesus has pointed out that all of us at some point want to see others lose. All of us at some point have thought 
inappropriate thoughts about someone else in terms of murder. Now, I know for most of us, we would go, I would never want somebody dead. I've, I've never thought about murdering. Even as, as I joke with my father, and even as he jokes, he honestly has never wanted to actually murder my mom. At least I hope not. <laughs> yeah, but Jesus comes along, and, and he goes, you've heard it said, don't murder. And everyone goes, yeah. And Jesus goes, well, you know what? When you think in your mind and in your heart, you fool. That's the same as murder. When in your heart you look at somebody else and you go, you fool. Man, you're a nuisance. You're a pain. You're just a problem. Go away. And Jesus goes, that is akin to murder. You know, I, I was going to ask, has anybody ever thought somebody else a fool by, by getting you to raise your hands? But I was worried somebody would lie by not raising their hands. And I didn't want to put you in that boat because you're also not supposed to lie. So Jesus says, we've all wanted that. We've all been in that place. So as much as we talk about enemies, we need to remember we've been enemies. I wish you could have joined us in our prayer time before the service this morning. As we were praying for today's service, and I know there were a group praying in the room even long before the service, but the team came up and we prayed for just a few minutes before the service. And one of the people in the time of prayer prayed out lord help us when we're that neighbor that is difficult to love that's what jesus is saying you know you talk about enemies but you yourself have been an enemy therefore love and jesus kind of in the middle of this talking of loving neighbors and and loving enemies he points out this common grace I love this little illustration that Jesus gives in verse 45 that God causes the rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. He, he brings the sun, meaning he covers everyone under his common grace. He blesses and sustains all humanity in one way or another. He, he sustains even those who are far from him, those who reject him, those who ignore him. God says, I give them grace. So therefore, don't you try and give hatred. And of course, Jesus points out it's human nature to love those who are like us. We have no problem with that. You know, in fact, I spoke about those Darby days. I went to an all-boy high school. There were about 750, 800 boys in our high school. Uh, and there were, there were fights aplenty. You know, I mean, you bunch of 13 to 18 year old boys, a lot of sport, a lot of you know, physical domination of who's bigger, who's stronger, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and of course, somebody invariably makes a joke about somebody else's mama and, and it just goes sideways from there. And so there were fights all the time. But when it came to Derby Day, that week build up, none of us fought. In fact, our school spirit went up because now we had this common enemy and suddenly people who would beat each other up three weeks prior are now high-fiving one another. And so Jesus goes, you see, it's common. It's nothing special loving those who are like you. Even tax collectors, even pagans, they do that. What is different, what is counter-cultural are those who love their enemies. And so we might kind of go, well, how do I love my enemies? How am I supposed to love those who want to see me harmed? 
Jesus goes, well, sorry, Scripture reminds us that loving the others is helping them find reconciliation with God. Help them seek reconciliation. This is what Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 5. In fact, in Romans 5 verse 10, Paul says, While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So even as we who were alienated and far off from God, who were his enemies... In fact, Paul says it just a few verses before that. God demonstrates his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we need a help point to Christ. We share the gospel of salvation with those who do not know. In order that they would be reconciled to God. But because they're our enemies, we also seek reconciliation between humans. And certainly we seek reconciliation whenever and wherever possible. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And he says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. Paul again echoes that in Romans 12, verse 18. If it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. How do I love my enemies? I point them to Christ. I seek to have them reconciled with God and I seek to reconcile with them. That means I pray for them. I pray that they would encounter God and be forced onto their knees and repent before God. And I pray for them that as they see the sin and as they see the hurt and the pain they've caused, that they confess that sin in order to be reconciled. Now, of course, that begs the question, because it was even in the song we just sang, what about those who abuse us? What about those situations where perhaps our enemy is someone we loved and now there's abuse and there's literal physical danger? What do I do in that place? Well, I think verses 38 to 42 in Matthew chapter 5 sort of answer that. And really a summary of those verses, and you can read those, is Jesus says, don't try to get even. Leave justice to God. Because God will be just and God will make right in his time. But as we leave justice to God in an abusive situation, in a place where there is physical danger or or a literal threat to our lives, I do not believe Scripture says we have to stay there. It, It blows my mind and it makes me so angry when I hear of stories of marriages where a wife is being abused by her husband and someone in the church goes, well, it's your duty to stay with your husband because the Bible says perhaps he will be redeemed through your holiness and you need to forgive him because he says sorry. And they will send a wife back in to an abusive situation. No, I do not believe we have to do that. We need to pray, yes. We need to seek reconciliation. But we do not need to live in that place. Especially since that husband has already broken his marriage vows. We do not stay. We can love from a distance. You know, when I read through this passage, verse 43 to 47... Really what Jesus is saying, I guess I could have summed it up right at the beginning and not wasted 15 minutes of your life. 
What Jesus is saying is be like your heavenly father. Love even those who do not love you in return. Be like your heavenly father. He loves. He loves those who don't love him back. He extends grace. He extends. uh, He sustains them. Be like your heavenly father. This is the theme and this is the message Jesus is communicating. But then it finishes off in verse 48. And in verse 48 of Matthew 5 says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And what on earth does that mean? How on earth am I supposed to be perfect? I mean, I don't know about you, but just trying to go a day without doing something wrong is hard enough. I'm still oh for however many thousands that I've lived. How am I supposed to be perfect? But yet this is what Jesus says. To summarize your life as a disciple and the life of those who follow Christ, be perfect because God is perfect. I think over here we, we maybe need just a, a quick investigation into some of the Greek. I know I don't do this very often, but but this is one of those cases where we need to look into it. So when Jesus says perfect, the word that's used here is teleos. Uh, And teleos means something that is finished, something that is not lacking anything. It is complete. It is whole. There is no without to it. It's full. It is perfect. And so Jesus says, this is the aim. To be perfect. And so at the beginning of the sentence, Jesus says, you are to be perfect. The Greek word there is actually a compound word and an expression. And the word there is esteste. And esteste uh, comes from the root word aimi. Stick with me over here. And it means to exist, to happen, to be present. If you're a language buff and you go, okay, well, it's a verb... Uh, what is the, what's the tense and, and what's kind of, how's the verb laid out? Well, this verb is a future middle verb. And you're going, what now? <laughs> you're not alone because I also had to remind myself by doing some research of my old Greek notes. The future middle tense of this verse will come into play when I compare the verb at the end of the verse. Because Jesus says you are to be, future, middle tense, perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the to be and the is come from the same root verbs. The only difference is God, the heavenly Father, that verb is a present active verb. So right now we're talking about God in this moment. And it doesn't matter when we talk about God. If we talk about God a thousand years ago, if we talk about God in a thousand years, it is the present active tense. It means God is now perfect. And active means he is the one who is at work. And that's the comparison between that middle. You see, the middle is, you might understand passive and active. Let me use an illustration. If I'm standing on the pier down at Crescent Beach and I jump into the water, of course, not right now, it's a bit cold, I'll wait till summer. If I jump into the water, 
I am active. It is me doing the work. But if I'm standing next to the pier and my son comes along and pushes me into the water, the result is the same. I end in the water, but I am passive in doing that. I didn't choose to get into the water. Somebody else chose for me and somebody else acted. The middle verb is, is kind of a combination of the two of them. And a middle means I was standing peacefully, I was pushed in, but now rather than just floating in the current and allowing myself to be swept out to the ocean, I choose to act and I swim back to shore. And because it's future, it's something that is yet to happen. And so when Jesus says, be perfect, what Jesus is acknowledging is, you know what, you're not perfect right now. And you won't be. But you will be in the future. But you have a part to play in this. You have a role. You don't just passively sit back as though nothing depends on you. No, you play your part with him who began that good work in you. As Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And that means as long as we're here, as long as we're still breathing, God is still at work in our life perfecting us. But I play a part and I do my best. And when it's up to me, I try. Knowing that occasionally I'm going to get it wrong and I'm going to stumble and I'm going to fall. But in that moment, I'm going to get back up and I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit to lift me up. And I'm going to keep on keeping on in this journey towards being like my heavenly father. God, all through scripture, calls us to be holy, to be complete, to be free of sin, to be like our heavenly father. And so, as Jesus says in this point, you will receive that final perfection from God. Even though you won't fully achieve it now, keep working, keep going. And so until then, until I become perfect, what do I do? Well, I work with God as he works in me. And I avoid pride. Because pride is one of those things that comes along and destroys our ability to love others. If I think I'm better, I, I, I'm not going to love you. You're worse than me. No. Humility to remember. And then also I avoid defeatism. Any Downton Abbey fans in here? Yeah, I see a couple of hands. You know, one of my favorite lines is when the Dowager Countess goes, Don't be so defeatist, darling. It's awfully middle class. I know I've just massacred her accent. But, but defeatism is we, we kind of go, Well, I'm not perfect. I'm never going to be perfect, so I just give up. No. I receive it as a gift of grace, and I keep on keeping on. Even though I won't fully achieve it, I keep working with my Heavenly Father as God works in me and through me. I will be like my Heavenly Father, and I will love those who do not love me. This is what Jesus is saying. Love your enemies. So when we start to love that neighbor, we love even those who do not know Christ. And we love those who do not love us in return. Actually, I realized that previous statement might actually be wrong because maybe they do love Christ. They just don't love us. 
Yet I will love even those who do not love me. You know, as I close off this morning, you might be listening online. You may even be here in person. And you might go, yeah, Brian, that's all fine and well. But I think I'm still an enemy of God. I don't even know if I believe in God. I don't know if, if I've accepted Christ. Or, or at least I know I haven't accepted Christ. And you might think to yourself, well, I'm an enemy of God and there's no ways God could love me. Brian, you don't know the things I've done. You, I'm too far gone. I think what Jesus says to each of us, and especially to those who believe themselves to be enemies of God, what Jesus says is God still loves you. God still wants to be reconciled to you. He is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. There is nothing you can do that will make God love you any less. In the same vein, there's nothing you can do that will make God love you any more. And my encouragement to you this morning is to receive that gift of grace and to accept his gift of life and to be reconciled to God and then to work on being reconciled to others. My friends, if you're in White Rock Baptist Church and you call this church your home, I know in the past few weeks it's been really easy to talk about that neighbor out there. It saddens me to think occasionally, even in our congregations, we have enemies within a local church. That person said this. That person did that. They've never apologized. They've never acknowledged. And my friends, I would encourage you, pray for those and be reconciled to them. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we read through your word to us, as we listen to a part of this Sermon on the Mount, this incredible teaching of what it means to live as a disciple of Christ, to live in the light of your grace and your gift of life, God, we are, are blown away. And Lord, as we acknowledge that you extend grace and forgiveness to us, and as you extend pardon, as you reconcile us to you, so you call us to be reconciled with people around us. God, I know that many of us might not have those literal enemies that seek to kill us or that desire us dead. We know we have enemies that would like to see us fall. Because often, sadly, we have those that we would like to see fall. Yet your word calls us to pray. To pray for those with whom we are at variance. To seek your blessing over them. To seek your goodness to them. To see them reconciled to you. To see them living in the glory of your presence. And to see them moving towards the perfection that you call them to. Even as you call us to that perfection. God, I know that in this life, because our flesh and our spirit are at war, we will stumble, we will fall, we will make mistakes and we will sin. Yet there is grace and there is forgiveness for those who come back to you. Help us to work with you as you work in us. We won't achieve holiness on our own. 
But if we hold your hand and we walk with you as you do what you want to do in us, oh God, we're going to see incredible things. I pray for this community, not just our church, but this community in which you've placed this church. There are many people around us who who live as enemies with others. We only need to turn the TV on for a few minutes and and see the political divides, to see the, the racial divides, to see divides between families and those who were formerly friends. God, our world is in need of reconciliation. Help us to be those disciples of Christ who actively work towards that reconciliation. And as we live holy lives, because our God and Father is holy, may it change the world. For we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.